following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the Gospel of Luke. For more audio or information about our church, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Richard, team, thank you. Thank you. It, um, I don't know if anyone knows this. I, I have the privilege of coaching five-year-olds in soccer. My games happen to be on Saturday. So between, you know, yelling, you know, not at the kids, but about the game, of course, get that, and singing out, I mean, I might lose my voice in this, but I am so grateful to be here with you, church, this morning. Uh, Please don't hear me wrong when I say this, Um, because listen, we do take God's word seriously. Just put that out there, right? But as as seriously as we take God's word, there are times where we will come to things in our Bibles that we, I think, must allow ourselves to see a little bit of humor. In our case this morning, a lot of humor. Um, This is a crazy, interesting, humorous account of Jesus as a boy. Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, and we're going to have some fun this morning. Now, along the way, as we look at the story, and it is fun, uh, we're going to see one of the richest doctrines in all of the Bible, but we'll, we'll get there. But we need to have some fun on the way as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open them up. We're going to finish chapter two of Luke uh, this morning. So grab them, find your place there. As you do, um, there's a movie. It's a family movie, popular Christmas movie, all right? Um, my guess is, it's kind of a creepy movie if you think about it as well, but my guess is, is that many, if not most of us, have, are familiar with this movie. Uh, it's called Home Alone. All right, Home Alone, if you haven't seen it, you have this kind of, this young kid who's in a big family, lots of people everywhere in his house, lots of brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts, all of that, just crazy household, right? And um, this family is getting ready to go on a Christmas vacation together. I think Paris, but I didn't rewatch the movie and research for that. So um, I think they're heading off to Europe somewhere. And um, the inevitable happens. They oversleep. The alarm, they miss it. And that just causes what was already chaos to be absolute chaos. So everyone's running around. Everyone is trying to grab stuff, get out the door. They do get out the door. And they rush themselves to the airport, and you see this. I remember the, the image of them just like all, the whole herd of their family just sprinting down the terminal to get to their gate with all their bags. Uh, they get there. They get to their gate. They get on the plane. They're on their way to Paris. And then hours later on the plane, uh, you have a restless mom. It's just, I feel like we forgot something. I really feel like we may have forgotten something. And, and all of a sudden, she realizes what that something was. And, and as everyone is, is trying to sleep, which is what we all try to do on planes, you hear, Kevin, and just she screams because she realizes, my youngest son is not on this plane. And we are going thousands of miles in the wrong direction. And sure enough, she was right. Kevin wakes up at home with a quiet morning realizes he's been forgotten. That's when, you know, the story gets kind of creepy. But um, anyway, uh, I am not saying that the Bible stole, or that uh, the Home Alone, the writers of Home Alone stole their idea from the Bible. Not saying that per se, but they could have. This is our 
Home Alone narrative of the Bible that we're going to look at this morning. Um, and with that story in mind, you ready? We're going to look in, we're going to start at verse 41. So, so follow with me here. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, that's Jesus, they went up according to the custom. So again, we've said this throughout the first two chapters of Luke, but Luke is really uh, clear, and he wants us to see that Mary and Joseph were a very religious family. They were devout, they were faithful, they were, they were abiding by the law, they knew it, they were committed to it. And, and just by the way, before we continue, this journey that they're talking about is about a 70 to 80 mile journey uh, and so, uh, to Jerusalem. So if you, if you were to look at, if you read some of the history about this journey, this road, uh, what you find is this road is prone to hardships, uh, prone to robberies. It can be a treacherous journey for for uh, the people going. And, and also, what's interesting about this is according to the custom that they're talking about, the men had to go, right? So Joseph, get on. That's your job. That's your custom. You, you, you need to go. But according to the custom, the women, it was optional. It was something that, that let me just say this. The fact that Mary came with the family, just got them all together, the fact that she came is, a, is, is again, further telling us how committed this family was to the customs and the law. They went above and beyond, and here you see a 12-year-old boy Jesus. Okay, so how many have had a 12-year-old or have a 12-year-old? So you, you can picture where we're at here. Jesus is 12 years old, and he makes this trek with his family. Now, verse 43. And when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, um, I'll add there, and that feeling in the pit of their stomach overwhelmed them, um, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them ask, and asking them questions. Okay, so, so pause. It says that Jesus stays behind, and his parents did not know it. So two things here. One, Jesus has this apparent um, lack of concern for his parents' schedule. That's one thing. Uh, two, you see Mary and Joseph kind of trusted their boy, making good decisions. So they went a full day just trusting Jesus is going to, he's all right. He's with the crew, you know. Um, and, and keep in mind, I say this because Luke doesn't paint this picture of Mary and Joseph being horrible parents. You know, if I were to lose my kids for three days, you might say I'm a horrible parent, but that's not what Luke is, is painting this picture. It's not talking about them as being negligent. Uh, what it says is that they just expected him to be a part of the caravan. So like I said, it was a dangerous trip, a long trip. You don't just go out on foot alone. And what they did is they traveled in community, a caravan of people. And so here they think, okay, he's with grandma. He's with the neighbor. He's with someone. He's with our group. And, and having traveled a full day's trip, it wasn't until they got to the end of that day and, and realized, okay, we need to set up camp for the night. Where'd Jesus go? Full day's trip, 
Grandma, have you seen? No. Neighbor, no. And it wasn't till that point when they tried to set up camp that they realized it. Can you imagine the, the feeling, the pit in the pit of your stomach in this moment? Um, it's the Kevin moment of the Bible here. Uh, not only did you lose your son, can I push it a little bit? You lost Jesus. <laughs> like, there's a different level to this because think about this. God came and chose you to raise the Savior of the world, and you lost him. He's gone for three days. So immediately, uh, they do what any good parent would do, and they get back to Jerusalem. They, they, they return back to Jerusalem, uh, searching and searching, until finally, after, again, three days, they find him. So think about that. That means for three days. That means Jesus had to find a place to sleep, find something to eat while he was there, just in Jerusalem without his family. That means his parents had to lay their head on their, on their pillow at night knowing their son was gone. This is three days. Um, how many parents would you be pleased if your kid did this to you? I would not. I, I have uh, three small boys. By the grace of God, I have not lost one of them yet, and especially not for three days. The closest thing that I have ever come to this is at the store Academy, I don't like this store. Uh, no, no offense to Academy, great store, but it is horrible for children. I, I think it's like it, it, there's people, every stuff everywhere, and I think it's their racks are low to the ground and easy for kids to hide. And it is, I mean, we have three, and there, there was one day, this is the closest thing that I could, uh, that I could relate to, when Micah chose, my oldest, chose to hide in one of the clothes racks. <sighs> you don't know where he is, that feeling hits you, where did he go, is he okay? One minute feels like an hour. I can't imagine what three days would feel like in this scenario. I cannot imagine. But after three days, Mary and Joseph finally found him. So verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And then listen to this. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, is here sitting with teachers, listening to them, asking them questions, probing, offering answers of his own. This is 12-year-old Jesus here, 12-year-old. And they were all amazed at what they were hearing from this, from this boy, from this 12-year-old boy. Uh, as we, every week we get together, a group of us, and we talk about, you know, the text that we're going to be looking at on the weekend. And this week, as we were talking through it, Mike, uh, our church planning pastor, he made a comparison here that stuck with me. Okay. Uh, he said, it's like taking a trip to Houston, losing your 12-year-old, to return to Houston to find him at NASA, having deep intellectual conversations with the world's leading astrophysicists about the intricacies of space travel. That's a little bit like what this would have been like. 12-year-olds do not do this. This is a truly amazing moment. It reveals something loud and clear that this boy, there's something special going on in this text. There's something special. 
Everyone heard him, who heard him was amazed, right? Blown away, except for, of course, two people. <laughs> you guess who those two people are. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. It's a different kind of astonished here. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, there is an understatement. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, we have been losing it, trying to find you. Why have you treated us like this? And now Jesus here is going to respond. Now, this is significant because this is the first time, the first words that we have recorded for us coming from Jesus. First words, all right? Um, And they show a lot, actually. So verse 49, And he, Jesus, said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What a statement. Let's not miss a couple important things. One, notice in verse 48, Mary says, your father and I have been searching. Your father and I have been worried. Your father and I, right? And now Jesus turns and he says, I must be in what? In where? My father's house. Don't don't take this wrong. This is not meant to be a slam on Jesus's earthly adopted father, Joseph. That's not like that at all. But the whole, this bold statement shows that Jesus was fully aware of his unique relationship in the Godhead. He was aware that this was my father. He was aware of the father. Another thing, it wasn't only that Jesus was fully aware of his father. This statement shows that Jesus was also fully aware of his mission. I must be in my father's house. He knows his purpose, his mission. He knows it. It's interesting, they they didn't return to Jerusalem and find Jesus in the place where you, in places where you expect a 12-year-old. Like, not in a shop, the mall, um, just hanging out, local coffee shop, wherever. It wasn't that Jesus was in the temple. And not only in the temple, but having a deep, rich dialogue with the teachers. This is incredible. This is just incredible. Jesus understands his father. He understands his mission. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Uh, By the way, this is one of the many times in Luke that we're going to see that Jesus' family, right, his his earthly family and his brothers, sisters, they, they are confused about him. They don't get it. They don't get his words. They, they aren't fully, they know something special about him, but they don't understand what that is. And when Jesus drops these truth bombs, they don't know what to do with them. And they're, they're confused by it. And there's this struggle that we see throughout Jesus's life and ministry where the, his family are wrestling with what is this? What is going on? I mean, last year, we, we looked at the book of James. And we talked about how James, who wrote the book of James, was actually Jesus's brother. Grew up with Jesus, saw Jesus, uh, was with Jesus. Jesus's 
brother. And, and Jesus's moment, or James's moment of faith, the moment where we have recorded that he actually believed and was changed, it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead. That means that all of Jesus's life, you have a brother, you have a family who loved him, was there with him, but didn't fully understand what the, how big this was. And this was the case here when, when Mary and Joseph, they struggled to understand what they just saw, what they just heard. And Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that, that he submits to them. He comes with them. Um, and Luke says, again, we've heard this several times, that Mary just stops, takes it all in, treasures it all up in her heart, is how Luke says it. This is the second time she's done this. And, and so we see her there just taking this all in. What does this mean all right, taking it all in. Now, on the surface level, this is a quirky little story. Uh, this is a humorous story that gives us a glimpse into Jesus' childhood. It's a story that bridges baby Jesus to ministry Jesus, 30 plus years. It's the only story that we have that bridges that that gap. And so on the surface, that's what this is. But there's something else here that we must see. Uh, something that is crucial, something that is foundational for us as, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, there's something crucial here to understanding our gospel message. I know that this is going to shock you, but we're going to take a moment to talk about Jesus this morning, okay? I know it shouldn't shock you, but, but we are. We're going to take a little moment. I want us to talk about this. Um, Jesus is God. Amen. Amen. You can, you can be vocal on that one. Jesus is God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God. We have uh, all, all throughout. John 1, for example, that, that he, he is eternal, forever existent, right? Agent of creation, all-powerful, all-knowing, unlimited. We have this picture of Jesus. Colossians 2.9, for in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? That means... He has all the attributes of God. He fully, fully God. You tracking? Do you believe that? Amen. As a Christian, this is not a side doctrine. This is not something that, that's, you know, um, I'll put it like this. This is Christian. This is central. This is foundational. And to deny that Jesus Christ is God is to is not Christian. I'll just say that. This is central, foundational. And to believe that Jesus Christ is God is to stand alongside of the brothers and sisters that have come before us who have died declaring this message. Right? This is central. So let me put it like this. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is fully God. And Jesus Christ is nothing less than fully God, okay? Jesus Christ is God, is fully God, and is nothing less than fully God. Again, church, do we believe that? Amen? Amen. Now, we also believe that Jesus Christ was fully man, fully human, just like you and I, human, um, tempted, struggling with having pain, dealing with emotions, limited in understanding, growing in understanding, growing in strength and stature. We see this in our text. Uh, 
Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully men. Remember, we said that Jesus Christ is God, is fully God, is nothing less than fully God. Well, we also believe that Jesus Christ was man, was fully man, and was nothing less than fully man. Do we believe that, church? Amen? Amen. Um, This is, again, foundationally Christian. This is central. Uh, we, We... cannot deny this. We cannot deny deny this. If we denied either of those things, then we are something else. We are not Christian. We are something else. Um, Let me say it like this. This is the easiest way I have to say it. This is important. This is important. And yet, the reason I bring this up is because Luke 2, verse 52, which is the end of our story here, has often been looked at, misused, misunderstood, and a lot of people have gone before you and I and have wrestled with this text. It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay? So Jesus, fully God, author of all wisdom, here is growing in wisdom. How can perfection and complete wisdom grow in wisdom? How can perfection get better? Um, Throughout history, this has led some people to say, well, look, he couldn't have been fully God because, because Jesus didn't seem to have all of the characteristics and the attributes of God. He didn't seem to have that. He had to have been something else. He, maybe he was, he was fully man, and then later, you know, that God thing happened, and he became, or it's led other people to look at the same story and to say, well, he couldn't have been fully man. He knew too much. Twelve-year-olds don't have theological conversations with the leading teachers in the temple. There was something special about it. He had a special relationship with the Father. Um, he must have been something else. Again, here is why I bring this up. There are few texts that showcase both the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ like our text today. As quirky and as humorous as it may be, there are few texts that bring out simultaneously that Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. And so I thought we need to finish our time together digging into that because this is central This is absolutely central. If you have your Bibles, you can mark Luke, but then turn with me a few books to your right to Philippians. Philippians chapter two. While you're getting there, let me just set the tone while you're finding your place there. Um, There is often and unfortunately a, a, a gap, a big gap between what is theological and what is practical. What is, what is seen as the, theological and what is seen as practical. So, so we can look at theology, like it, love it, dislike it, wherever you are at when you hear that word theology. You can look at it and we can think that it is for the head, that we continually grow in our knowledge of a subject. Uh, like, you know, any other subject. Take science history, any historians, anyone like history. Two of us. All right. So for both of us who who like it, um, as we study history, for those of you who enjoy it, um, we can look at, we can grow in our knowledge and our understanding of a subject. 
we can grow in our understanding of, of a certain time period, right? And in the case of history, it can end there. And it is perfectly acceptable for it to end there because history is a static subject. It is a subject to be studied. It is a topic to be known. Now, although there are certainly, for all the historians in the room, things that we look at in history, and we should learn from them, right? We should. Um, the point of history is still not life transformation, all right? That's, that's not why you get into history, right? Um, theology is not like history. It's not like science. It's not like any other subject that we, that we simply study, so that's one approach when you hear the word theology. Often, though, I've seen there's another approach, and that is to approach it like it is a series of life hacks, good advice, good application, right? So you have over here. Uh, we think of it kind of like the self-help book uh, section in our bookstore, right? You, you don't pick up a self-help book to just gain knowledge. If you do, you're doing it wrong. Because the, what self-help books are meant for is for you to take Learn, yes, but apply. You pick up a self-help book in order to make you grow, to, to make your life better. Theology is not like a self-help book. Theology is not like a history book or any other subject. Theology is this unique category all to its own. And we're about to see this on display here. But it is deeply historical. It is deeply factual. It happened. It's truth absolute truth. It, it has knowledge for us to gain. And at the same time, it has application for us. It, has, it is life-changing. It has principles for us to apply. So what is it? What is it? Theology is the life-transformational study of a life-transforming God. Read that again. Theology is the life-transformational study of a life-transforming God. So in other words, if you aren't changed when you discover who God is, you're doing it wrong. Or if you're trying to change apart from knowing who God is, church, you're doing it wrong. Theology um, bridges the gap. As Christians, we shouldn't be content with the head and heart gap because theology bridges that. Theology bridges that. Um, so we are about to look in Philippians 2 and Luke 2 as well at one of the richest doctrines in theology. And to understand it, to believe it, will absolutely change your life. It will absolutely change your life, both in big picture and in the practical here and now. Let's look together. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Others. So up to this point, um, Paul is offering these instructions for us on how we live our lives. It's incredibly practical, right? We see what we're supposed to do and, and the way we're supposed to live. And now 
Paul is going to shift into talking about why and what we believe. Listen to this, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Paul tells us exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 2. He encourages us to have the same mind of Christ in humility. And listen to what he said. He said, although he was fully God in the form of God, right? Jesus was God, like we said, fully God, was nothing less than God, But Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself. What? What does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus, fully God, emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? Did he stop being God? Did he stop having the characteristics and attributes of God? Did he empty himself of those? Did he lay aside knowing everything? I mean, he was all powerful. Did he put that aside? What happened? What is he emptying himself of? What does that mean? Think about this, church. In the text, remember what we read first. Paul is encouraging us to have the same mind as Christ, being meek and humble, right? That's what he's encouraging. Of course, meekness is not weakness, It's absolute power under control. And this is what Paul is is encouraging us to. So what then does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Church, he emptied himself of his rights. He laid down his rights to his power, his rightful power as God. We have, um, remember meekness, absolute power, under absolute control. That's what we have exemplified for us in this text, that Jesus being fully God empties himself of his right to his power. Empties himself. I'll put it like this. It's never that he lacked his power or lacked his characteristics of God. It is way better than that, church. It is way better than that because although he was God, he laid down his rights as God and he humbled himself to be born, to be killed. He humbled himself as a man, born as a human, both fully God and fully man. And so here in our text, we see that on display. Little boy Jesus, we see it on display for us. That that Jesus emptied himself, laid down his rights to, to absolute power, fully man, fully human, at the same time, fully God, fully divine. And therefore, Luke says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Church, this single truth, this this 
our belief in, in Jesus being the God-man, our belief on this, this is what separates us, church. This is what makes us distinctly Christian. No other faith stands on this. In fact, you'll see if you look at other faiths, um, other creeds, other religions and worldviews, especially those of which who are theistic, meaning they believe in a God, um, here's what you'll see. They are all chiefly concerned with how man can get to God. How, what do we have to do? What can we do to bridge the gap? Christianity is different in what it lays out for us. Because it's not what we have to do to get to him. It's what he has done to get to us. It's not about the things we do to go to him. It's about that we serve a God who came to us, who came to us. And I want that to just sink in because it's not about doing things or not doing things so that we're able to please God. It's not what it is. In fact, the law clearly shows us that we are unable to do that. And we have been unable to do that from the beginning. It is not about us doing something to get to him. It is much better. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. Here's what is, is unique about Christianity in this, is that for us, it's not a doing things religion. For us, it's a responding to what has been done. That makes all the difference. As we look at, at Luke 2 at the end of this story, and we see, we see on display for us the God-man, Jesus' love for us, that he would lay down, himself, lay down and empty himself for you, becoming a man, that he came down for you. Romans 5.8 says that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. How about uh, 1 Timothy 1.15? It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He lived the life we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve. He came down for you, giving us perfection through his life, conquering death, taking our penalty through his death, and, and defeating death through his resurrection. Here's why this matters. Here's why this changes everything, is because God came down to us so that God is pleased to call us his children. Without Christ's life, um, you and I would not be able to stand before God a pleasing sight, acceptable and righteous and perfect. We would not be able to stand before God in that way. Church, do you know that you are perfect in his sight? For, for some of us in the room, we're like, nope, I am not. And you are right in some sense because you are not perfect. I don't know you, but I will put money on it. You are not perfect. You are far from it. And that's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is so good. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Listen to this. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning the father looks at us who are in Jesus Christ with the pleasure that he has looking at his perfect son, righteous, perfect, lacking nothing. 
That perfection has been given to you through Jesus Christ. That is yours in Jesus Christ. It must start here. It must start here because without this, can we be honest, we're just playing church. Without this, we are playing religion and it is empty. If that's you in this room and you're tired of that, and that's been your experience, you're tired of looking around and seeing just empty religion. If you're tired of it and, and you're exhausted of it, um, there is more church. Jesus came to save you not only from your sin, praise God he did that, but also from the empty religion that you are a part of. There is freedom in Christ. Uh, Romans 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So for everyone here, uh, for everyone here, everyone listening to this, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord, that he came, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, if we confess Jesus is Lord, we know, church, that we are favored, we are loved, we are saved. Saved from your sin, from death, from empty religion. We are saved. This changes everything. And this message is not only for those who have never heard it, but it is for all of us. You will never graduate, never graduate from the gospel message. You will never graduate or get over the gospel message. This is one of the hardest things about being a gospel preacher is because you forget that you have to remind us all that this is for us. Not them, this is us, that this is talking to us, me, you, that I am talking to you. No matter how long you have followed Jesus, that this is for you. And if there comes a moment when you find yourself repeatedly checking out whenever a gospel message is presented, can I just put before you, that should be a warning sign in your heart. A red flag should go off. And it should be the thing that drives you back to the greatness and the goodness of our gospel because we will never graduate. It is both our milk and our meat. It saves us and it sustains us. It, it is our everything. We talk, we've talked a lot about being on mission for the, with the gospel, but church, gospel mission flows out of the gospel message. To take away the gospel message leaves us with nothing. So we drive back to this, and no matter who you are here, no matter if you are responding to the gospel for the very first time, praise God if that is you. Or if you're here and you're responding to the gospel for the 112th time, praise God. Praise God for you. Because the call for us, no matter who we are, no matter our background, no matter what our life has looked like before you walked into this place and sat down in these chairs, no matter what your life has looked like bringing you to this moment, the call for every single one of us is the same. It's to respond. 
If we confess, we respond, we believe, we are saved. Church, let us respond together. Let me pray for us. God, we stand on the truth that you love us so much that you sent your son into this world to die for us, to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we, each one of us, deserve. And we also stand on the fact that you have told us that if we believe in you, we are saved. Meaning that we don't need to shoulder our sin because it has been dealt with. We don't need to shoulder our shame because it has been paid for. God, we stand on this as a church. If you took everything away from us but left us this, we would be satisfied. God, and if you gave us everything but took this, we would be empty. We stand on the good news of your son being both fully God and fully man. Being able to bridge the gap to be our mediator. God, we stand on that fact. And I just pray for every person in this room that we're able to get deeply personal in this moment with ourselves. God, right now, would you just move in our hearts? Would you show us the goodness of your gospel? Would you, perhaps for the first time, show us why this matters? Would you stop us in our tracks? For, for some of us, I, I just pray that you show us the, the, a glimpse of the depth of the love that you have for us. I pray for some of us that you just remove weights that we have walked into this room with. I pray that you, that you help guide those of us who walk in this room and are tired of empty religion. I pray that right now in this moment, you show us what is real that you turn light bulbs on in our minds this morning, that you open our eyes, that you give us ears to hear you, to hear your word. And God, I pray for every one of us in this room that we would respond to your gospel this morning. That we would respond and confess, you are Lord. And we know that we pray all of this in and only in the name of your son who conquered it all. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.